Hello everyone. Welcome to Arthaniti. I'm Shekhar Tomar. In the last few years, the international capital flows have been fairly volatile. First, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, and then due to the increase in inflation at the global level. And as a result of that, the global investors have been looking for perceived safe haven assets, and they have been moving away from emerging market economies. Not surprisingly, it has also led to very sharp spikes in volatility in the foreign exchange markets. To understand the intricacies of these issues, we have Professor Philip Baketa with us today. He's currently the Swiss Finance Institute Professor of Macroeconomics at University of Lausanne. He's also a visiting scholar at the Harvard, the IMF, the NBER, and it's also been an academic consultant at various central banks. Professor Baketa, he has top economics and finance publications on topics related to open economy, macroeconomics, international finance, and financial crisis. We are very happy to have you here, Philip. Thank you, I'm happy here to be here too. So I'll start with a very broad question in the beginning, which is trying to understand how exchange rate movement works. What is the theory or what are the standard theories behind understanding how exchange rates fluctuate? Well, there are many uh, theories, many models, but currently we can classify these models in two categories, those that are based on real factors, that are real models, for example, uh, based on productivity, on uh, preferences, etc. And these are more for medium to longer term determinants of, uh, of, of exchange rates. And then there's another category looking more into uh, the, the financial uh, part, the shorter uh, term part where uh, exchange rate is related to nominal factors, to financial factors. So these are the two uh, broad uh, categories trying to explain movements in exchange rates. And when you talk about this short, medium and long term, what are the horizons are we looking at over here? Well, long, long term is more, I would think, uh, uh, annual or, or like even uh, decades if we think, think about productivity while shorter term can go from even daily to monthly and maybe quarterly. And so if you have to put together these two approaches, like how different they are in terms of why have we chosen to focus on financial side to forecast or predict like short term exchange rates versus the longer, longer run ones? Well, usually, uh, no, we can we can also combine this. There are recent papers uh, in in the in the literature that uh, try to combine the, these two aspects, where we have uh, the uh, more f the financial uh, factors will have a very short term impact that will die out after maybe after a day, after after a week. So the, this effect will will disappear, and then the more fundamental factors will will dominate. So uh, this is why these more the, the real part will matter more in the, in the long run because these financial factors will have a, a smaller effect over time. And there has also been change in terms of how central banks think about managing the exchange rate. So we used to have a lot of countries following fixed exchange rate systems. And now most have moved to some kind of complete or like partially managed exchange rate system. What has been the history for this change? Well, there are, there are various factors in the international monetary system. One of them is the increase in financial integration and increase in capital mobility, which makes it more difficult to keep fixed exchange rates. We had also experiences of a large currency crisis in fixed exchange rates. So this has kind of discouraged countries to have a, a, an exchange rate completely fixed. On the other hand, there is maybe still some potential for managing the exchange rate using foreign exchange reserves. So this is a kind of a natural trend with more market determined exchange rates. 
And I mean, there are few outliers still which tend to manage their exchange rate more than others, and probably China is one of them, and you have a paper on that. So maybe you can give us some story, some reason why China still tries to manage it, and what makes them more special. Well, I, I'm not sure that in terms of exchange rate, China is particularly special, but what is still the case is that they still have strong capital controls. And therefore, uh, the ability by the, the central bank and in general by, by the state to affect the exchange rate directly, for example, through their international reserves, but also indirectly through their banks. Uh, and there is a, a better ability to, to stabilize the currency thanks to these restrictions rather than uh, other more developed economies. But why would you want to stabilize? Like, does it have some benefits for the overall economy if you have a very stable exchange rate? Well, there may be, there may be benefits. So there's a whole uh, literature on that, uh, whether you, know, you have the pros and cons of, of a fixed exchange rate. But let me mention one, one paper we, I, I wrote a few years ago with uh, Aguillon, uh, Rancière, and Rogoff, where we show that having a, a fixed exchange rate uh, improves uh, growth for countries with a low level of financial development. So if you can stabilize your exchange rate uh, in a successful way, in an effective way, this uh, provides some, uh, some of an insurance for the overall economy. And, and we, the empirical results show that uh, this can even boost growth. But this is just the insurance perspective, or it's also easier for importers and exporters to price their products? Is, is it also coming from that angle? It could be. I mean, the, uh, in the empirical evidence, we cannot uh, disentangle the, the various mechanisms. We can just show that the stability uh, was positive for these countries at, uh, with low financial development. But of course, if you have a low financial development, it's more difficult for firms, for exporters, importers to hedge exchange rate risk or to borrow in, in foreign currency, etc. And it doesn't matter, like once you are more advanced economy, this effect right. goes away. So it, there is no impact when you're more advanced. Okay. So I'm quoting from one of your papers, and this is related to the field of work that you have been trying to develop. And so you mentioned that the poor explanatory power of existing theories of nominal exchange rates is most likely the major weakness of international macroeconomics. So I think this paper was in 2006. Is the statement still true, or we have made a lot of progress since then? Yeah, I think I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't write this uh, t today. You have to remember maybe that in the, in the 90s there was very little research on on nominal exchange rates, and in my view, uh, people, well, researchers in that field were a bit uh, depressed after the results of Mies and Rogoff who uh, show that uh, the uh, fundamental factors, the macroeconomic factors had no impact on the exchange rate, that the random work was, was better. So there was very little uh, done on, on exchange rate. Therefore, there was a, indeed a weakness in the, in, in, in the knowledge. Uh, in the last uh, two decades, the research has been much more active from different perspectives, trying to understand what is going on. It's very, still very difficult to explain exchange rate, to predict exchange rate, but at least we understand better what are the influences, what are the factors, how this, this can work. So nowadays, I think we have, we've made the progress. There's still a lot to, to, to do, but uh, the research has uh, provided many interesting developments. So if you can touch upon this uh, Mies and Rogoff paper from 1984, what do you mean by that random walk is better than doing all kinds of sophisticated economics to predict exchange rates? Well, at, at the time, the economics were not so sophisticated. They were like basic models that like the monetary model or, or the portfolio balance model where they, they were just based on uh, uh, like uh, variables like uh, output, monetary policy, uh, trade. So when you take these variables to try to explain exchange rates, 
Well, uh, you do no better, or you do even worse, if you assume that the exchange rate follows a random walk. And it means that all these macro variables and all these models were basically uh, useless in explaining fluctuation in exchange rates at the, at the monthly level, at the quarterly, or the annual level. And so if I follow up, like you again have like a very interesting quote, uh, similar time period, you said that uh, since Mess and Rogoff, macro variables have very little explanatory power for exchange rate in the short to medium run. On the other hand, market analysts often point to particular macroeconomic developments in accounting for exchange rate. So what is this distinction between the academic side of things and the market players? Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see that you now um, academics, they, they conclude that, well, macroeconomic variables don't matter or that was at, at the time. But then if you see the markets, they follow announcement of uh, monetary policy, wages, etc. They follow this very closely and the markets often uh, react uh, to this. So I guess uh, one explanation is simply that uh, they care, uh, at a, they have a high, very high frequency uh, horizon, so they care about what will happen in the, in the next minute, in the next uh, few hours, in the next in the next days. While uh, with uh, macroeconomic analysis, we tend to use uh, monthly or quarterly data, so these movements may not be uh, visible. And this was actually one kind of a motivation for uh, some of the, the papers I've, I've, I've written, trying to uh, find why it is that macro variables may matter, may influence expectations, may influence the markets, but if you run regressions at these uh, frequency quarterly, you, you, don't, you don't see them. And one of the explanations is that when you have uh, imperfect information, you could have a, a, at least a framework where agents, they all have uh, rational expectations, they care about macroeconomic variables, but uh, this is not reflected in the exchange rate at, at the quarterly level because of uh, information noise of uh, rational confusion. So uh, that uh, the macro variables do matter, but it's difficult to, uh, to see this in the data. So just to connect to the point that you mentioned in the beginning, so is the central bank interest rate policy, like is it a macro variable or it's a financial variable? Because it seems like it's not productivity Right. It's, a, it's more like, uh, well, it's, it's macro financial, but these are more shorter term because they can be moved. Uh, now we, we see uh, maybe next month the Federal Reserve will increase the short term rate and they might decline in, uh, in six months. Or so, so these are shorter term macro financial variables. But for the market participants, is it just some kind of like ex post rationalization to say, OK, this happened and so it has to have some impact on the Forex market? Or do they really have models which can explain? Well, they, they, I mean, this affects returns. So then uh, it, for the very short term horizon, this has an impact on returns, on exchange rates, on, on stock prices. So this is something that uh, is, is present in, in their models. And so what's the current understanding on this issue? Because I remember that one of your papers, like in the early uh, 2005, 2006, you said some kind of scapegoat model of exchange rate. And then I think you have a follow-up paper as well on this issue. Yeah, so the, the scapegoat model is something that, that occurs because of these 
imperfect information, so it's difficult to link precisely uh, the exchange rate to uh, macro fundamentals, but sometimes uh, you, you find a, a link, and uh, then the markets and the financial press say, oh, the dollar appreciated because of a, a change in uh, productivity or because of the, of the government deficit, etc. So they, they tend to give too much weight to a variable over uh, some period, and maybe a few months later they talk about another variable. So we are talking about the, the uh, scapegoat, where the variable that matters for the exchange rate changes over time. So we have these changes in focus uh, by the markets. And we try to explain this with uh, imperfect information. But if there are, let's say, five variables which matter for exchange rate, are you saying that the amount of weight that you put on each of them varies depending on the shock? It varies over time because of this rational confusion. So you have these variables, these macro variables that matter, but then you also have financial shocks like noise or uh, liquidity shocks, etc. So if you have a financial shocks that leads to, for example, an appreciation, and this happens at the same time as one of your variables is high, then you will give the, the weight, the, the, the scapegoat will be all. It is because of that variable that you have an appreciation, while it's, it was not that, it was because of the financial shock. Over time, you realize, oh, no, it was not this variable, because this variable is still high, and now my currency depreciates, the financial shock has disappeared. And then you change your view when you say, maybe that there's another financial shock, and then maybe you, you focus on another variable. But is there some money lying on the table to be made if this is like so irrational? This is not, so the research we are trying to, to make is that, well, there, I'm sure there's irrationality in the markets, but we're trying to find frameworks with rational agents that have this type of behavior, not because of irrationality, but because of imperfect information. So if this is the source, and everybody has imperfect information, then there, there cannot be money made in that case. Uh, you have to have superior information to try to exploit that. Uh, maybe you can unpack that last part to us. You need to have more information, superior information said. Yes, if you have a aggregate information about what the agents believe, basically the markets will move with agents' expectations, with uh, the agents' perceptions, beliefs. So if you could aggregate their, their beliefs, so you could like, survey them, or uh, uh, you, you could find their beliefs through their transactions, you could have like order flow, then with these uh, measures, with beliefs, order flow, then you can do better, and maybe there you can, you can exploit that, because you have uh, some aggregation of, of these dispersed beliefs or information. And how does it connect to your broader overall work on international capital flows? So you look at Forex uh, market, but a large part of it is also coming from the international capital flows side. Right. So in the, in the capital flows, the uh, focus was, uh, has been a bit uh, different. The uh, line of uh, research in, in recent years is uh, the fact or, or the observation that uh, capital does not flow as quickly as the standard model would, would say. Uh, the model are likely to say that if you have a small change in monetary policy, then portfolios should be reallocated throughout the world and all prices should be adjust, adjusted immediately. But if you observe what international investors do, they change their portfolio uh, slowly, uh, gradually or, or partially. So the, the recent research has been to explore the implications of this uh, gradual portfolio adjustment for the exchange rate, for capital flows, and also uh, examining this, this empirically. So we find that we can explain various puzzles, various features of, of exchange rates, 
like the uh, forward uh, discount puzzle and other aspects. Mm-hmm. We have a paper about six puzzles or, or now there are various aspects on the behavior of exchange rates and on, on capital flows. So maybe you can tell us about the forward discount puzzle. What's the puzzle? I guess it's also the pharma puzzle. Yes, the pharma puzzle is simply that if you increase your interest rate in your currency, the uncovered interest rate parity would tell you that your currency should depreciate to compensate for a higher interest rate. But in in reality, uh, in the data, you find that your currency appreciates. So when you increase your interest rate, you have a double gain, a higher interest rate plus a uh, currency appreciation. So you have expected excess return. You can make money out of that. And this is this is surprising. So how can you have these expected returns? So there have been like uh, hundreds of papers trying to uh, explain how this is possible. Our explanation is uh, the fact that portfolios don't adjust immediately. If you have an increase in the interest rate, you don't buy the currency all the way. You will keep buying for a while. And as you keep buying, the currency will, will appreciate. So when you have an interest rate increase, then your currency will appreciate for, say, several months. And therefore, you have these two returns. And you will also have, you may also have a, an overshooting of the uh, delayed overshooting of uh, the exchange rate. So the currency starts appreciating, appreciating, and then, and then it depreciates, which is something we find in the data. So I, I'll try to unpack like a few other things. So macroeconomists generally use uncovered interest rate parity. So maybe you can tell us what does it actually imply? Well, it's, it's an interesting question because in uh, standard models, we assume uncovered interest rate parity. I, I also do. So on the one hand, we show that it does not hold. We know it does not hold. On the other hand, we still assume it holds in many cases. Uh, but if you really want to be uh, close to the data, then you need to take this into account, the fact that uncovered interest rate parity does not hold. So if you have a large model that central banks really want, would need to replicate the data, then they have deviations from uh, uncovered interest rate parity that can be justified by these delayed portfolio adjustments. So this, typically, these um, UIP deviations have been introduced in an ad hoc way, but you can also kind of uh, justify them or generate them uh, with a delayed portfolio uh, adjustment. So that's something that should be taken into account. But in simple models, it's very difficult. But if you have a large model that you have to solve numerically anyway, so then you, you, uh, that's something that should be done. And on these portfolio flows, uh, I mean, generally, at least if you look at the data or for a naive uh, person who is just looking at the data, these outflows are fairly volatile. But you are saying that in the data, they are actually not that volatile the international capital adjustments. Right, so the, the flows are, are, are volatile, but what we care uh, are uh, port- the portfolio positions. So the overall portfolio position by mutual funds, pension funds, these are the, like the, the, main ac- the main actors. Their portfolios d- d- doesn't change uh, so much over time or change uh, slowly. So these uh, high frequency movements do not have a huge impact on, on, these, uh, on these portfolio positions, which should matter in the, the, the pricing and the impact, the macroeconomic impact. But this is just for the mutual funds or uh, like the pension funds, which I guess would be like more sticky in nature. But your paper mentions that this is true even for the mutual fund industry. 
Right, so we, we had uh, this empirical paper showing that even like mutual funds, they have a slow adjustment. So pension funds, insurances would be even worse, I, I think. Now, there are, of course, there are other uh, uh, agents that are much more, let's say, volatile, but uh, typically their positions are, are not as large. So they, they may still contribute to volatility. But uh, for example, you, you have uh, institutions that uh, try to arbitrage, but uh, they cannot uh, keep uh, large open positions. At the end of the day, they need to close their positions. So that may be extremely volatile, you have huge volume, but then uh, the, the, the net position then is very small. And ideally speaking, like if we have to compare these volatility, let's say to a domestic market, can we benchmark in some sense that relative to domestic market, the international portfolio positions are X percent less? Adjusted. That's it. Uh, I, I don't have uh, good numbers because we we have a better and better data on international portfolios, uh, but we don't have good data on domestic uh, portfolios for the aggregate. Uh, so it, it is difficult to compare. Yeah, but what's surprising over here is that we know that at least for the households, it's very sticky the portfolios. But in the international case, it's usually the bigger funds. And you are saying the reverse. It's the smaller players probably which are hedging or which are making the market more volatile, but it's the bigger players which are not changing their positions by much. Right, because in these cases, well, the bigger players, they try to have diversified portfolios. So then uh, now you need really big changes to, to reduce the portfolio. For example, they, they may follow the index, uh, they follow the MSCI index in, in, in the portfolio. So when there are, are changes, they do not reallocate a lot. And it's because I think uh, of, their, of their investment strategy, that they tend to have their, these uh, sticky positions. So I'm not sure if you looked at it, but is there some kind of heterogeneity if you look at how they invest in, let's say, advanced economies versus how they invest in emerging markets? Is this stickiness also borne out if you look at difference across countries? Well, uh, of course, there, there, are, there are differences. It's more difficult to see for less developed countries because there the positions are very small. So they can uh, like uh, go in and out, uh, and and the, this would give you a huge uh, huge volatility. But if you take the main uh, emerging markets, the difference, at least from our mutual fund data, the difference was not uh, significant. And so, what are the key takeaways then? So, if these uh, mutual funds, these international flows, are not that much adjusted over time, it means there is some stickiness. Yeah, so, so this matters in the, in the short to medium run. So this matters, for example, for the transmission of monetary policy. So this matters for central banks. That's why central banks, they introduce the deviations. In the medium run, I'm not sure this matters because, well, maybe the adjustments are slow to adjust, but uh, then, uh, well, over time, uh, well, the adjustment would be done or there would be some other shocks. So maybe at least in, uh, in my research, uh, I focused on, on the short run and Typically, we think that in, for, for longer-term issues, this should not be a, a major aspect. And so when you say transmission of monetary policy in this case, it dampens the transmission to the rest of the world, or it increases? It, uh, it, it dampens it, and, and the impact on, on the exchange rate is that, well, it dampens it, but then it also uh, gives a di dynamics. So the, for example, now, if you increase your interest rate, the currency will not appreciate as much as with the standard model. So the impact will be smaller, but it will appreciate over time. So there will be uh, some dynamic effect 
that uh, you don't find in standard models. And did you have a chance to look at like what's happening in the last uh, few years? Uh, does this mechanism that you talked about, this stickiness has been there yeah, within the last few years? Well, the post-COVID, well, we didn't have the, so the data was until uh, 2021, 20, 20, uh, the last couple of years, you know, there's something to be, to be examined, but we, we, well, there's plenty of, of, of evidence about uh, these, these portfolios, the, the, the behavior of these mutual funds and other institutions, uh, this has not changed in the, in the last few years. But do large events still make them adjust? So I'm thinking, let's say, taper tantrum in 2013. So the, the um, research of this delayed portfolio adjustment, this is, I would say, more like in, in normal times, when you have uh, shocks uh, of normal size changes in monetary policy, various types of shocks, when you have huge uh, events like the global financial crisis, uh, COVID, then of course, there will be uh, bigger adjustments and, and this is uh, somewhat different. And so from uh, someone who is managing these portfolios, like what's the reason for them to not adjust quick? Or let me ask the question another way. I guess there might be some uh, concerns just how do you execute these positions? And if you are a big portfolio and in one specific country, you can't sell everything at the same time. Are these concerns which are driving this kind of friction? Well, I think, I mean, this is a question that should be asked for, to those who manage because it's, it's an interesting question, but I think there are various factors that can, that can affect that. Of course, there could be a, the price impact if you, are, if you are very large, but there are uh, other factors. For example, I mean, the manager itself may not uh, decide huge changes in the portfolio. This has to be decided by, by the board, so it takes maybe some time before uh, you, you, can, you can do that. But uh, another thing is that these managers are evaluated with some benchmark, with the market. So if you take a big move, if you are right, that's fine, but, but if, you are, if you make a loss, then it's much more risky. So you, you tend to, to be much more conservative and not deviate from the benchmark, and then everybody does this, and then they all uh, follow the benchmark. So there are various reasons why they have some more risk aversion. These portfolio managers, there is a very high turnover, so they can, they can be fired at any time. So I think this, this has to do with the with incentives of managers, which, but then this is something that the manager themselves should, uh, should probably tell us. So moving a bit further to the other research, uh, which is mainly you have looked at like big events like the global financial crisis or even the uh, taper tantrum episode. So you mentioned that there are some kind of self-fulfilling uh, risk panics. So what piqued your interest in this topic and what is so like, I guess the term itself tells like self-fulfilling panics, but what's so self-fulfilling about them? Well, so this uh, interest started uh, with the global financial crisis. Uh, if you look at the VIX, the VIX was at about 20, and then it peaked at 80. So it was multiplied by four in a, in, in a few months. So VIX basically looks at the volatility in the in the stock market. And uh, well, in the macroeconomic models, we were trying to uh, think about this volatility, uh, explain this this uh, volatility. And it turns out that if you linearize large models, you may find multiple equilibria in in, in volatility. So we kind of uh, realize that uh, this can happen in macro models that you could have, uh, if you have a high volatility, then uh, you tend to buy less of, of the asset and this by itself can increase the, the, the volatility. If you're low volatility, you can buy a lot. So, so we found that th this, could, this could happen even in relatively uh, standard models and this could be a potential explanation that 
well, you could have high and low risk without changes in, in other fundamentals, because what happens is suddenly you, you have an increase in risk. And from a macro perspective, it's a bit uh, strange that suddenly you could have, you have this, this jump. So this could be explained, like for the sovereign debt crisis. No? We also have this idea that uh, you could have a self-fulfilling equilibria that may lead to a, to a default. Well, the same idea occurs with, uh, with volatility and asset prices and portfolios. So what would be an example of this like, self-fulfilling, let's say, debt crisis? Well, the, the best example that we, uh, we, we talk about uh, here in Europe is the Eurozone sovereign debt crisis with Greece, but also uh, Spain, Portugal and, and, and Italy. Suddenly, their spreads increased. So there, was problem, there were problems in Greece. But uh, Spain, Italy, and Portugal, they, they, were, they were doing fine. But suddenly, th there was a jump in, in, in the spread. And this could be uh, explained by a change in beliefs, a self-fulfilling change. And as the spread goes up, it means that the government have a harder time to reimburse their debt. And therefore, it is uh, right to think that the spread goes up. So it is, it is self-fulfilling. And uh, this is when the uh, European Central Bank uh, decided to uh, to intervene and do whatever it takes to kind of uh, cut this equilibrium. And when they announced their, um, this, this uh, uh, policy, they were referring to this self-fulfilling equilibria. And this is what they were trying to break. So this is a famous example of self-fulfilling equilibria in, in macro and for, for sovereign debt. And so you also mentioned that it's difficult to model these things theoretically. Like wh what makes it so difficult? I mean... There are two equilibria. The difficult part is how you move from one to the other. So, the, well, the idea is that if you have self-fulfilling equilibria, you uh, typically have uh, multiple equilibria. So you need non-linearities in the model in a kind of a plausible way. For sovereign debt crisis, you can have two equilibria, but one of them is not stable. So you're trying to find ways so that you can have at least two stable equilibria. So in the end, you need three. So these are like a bit more, more technical uh, aspects. And when you move from one to the other equilibrium, it's a change in expectations, which is not in the model. So people uh, change their expectations, so you go to the high risk, to the low risk, and to have any policy action, you need to affect these expectations. And so do you have like a lot of follow-up papers on this issue? Are we better prepared for understanding these kind of episodes now than, let's say, at the time of global financial crisis in 2008? I think we are better prepared uh, because uh, policymakers take these issues of uh, self-fulfilling risk seriously. So they realize, well, this is something that can happen. So it's not just the, the basic macro variables, but we can have these, uh, these jumps, this change in expectations. So looking at expectations is important. Finding policies that can influence expectations is important, having credibility. So there is a better understanding of, the, of these issues. So we can still, we cannot uh, avoid all crises, but at least the response is better prepared because it is better informed. And this is generally like, so if we take the debt crisis specifically, is it also the communication which is important or there are like some tools which can be used in terms of the intervention? Well, communication is important as long as it is credible because you need to make sure that you influence expectations. And then you need this communication has to come with some tools. So then the ECB said, uh, well, you, we will do whatever it takes. So meaning that they were ready to take action. In the end, they didn't have to do it. 
because this was credible enough. But uh, no, if, if you have no instrument and you say, oh, I'm going to, I promise you I will uh, avoid the, that crisis, but you have no credible instrument, this is useless. So moving to another part of your work, uh, which is like more recent, you're looking at how emerging market economy firms, they are issuing bonds in the US and you find that they issue more US dollar denominated bonds when the interest rates in the US are low. But what I really found interesting was that this is issued by non-exporters. Why? Well, so the, the idea is that uh, there is a, there's been a trend uh, in the in emerging markets so that uh, firms uh, were able to have been able to issue more bonds. Well, they used to rely a lot on bank credit and now the, the trend is that they are issuing uh, more bonds and some of them are in foreign currency. They can be issued locally or in international markets. Does it also have to do something with the capital controls in these countries or that's not a very big factor? Yes, yeah, so, so capital controls matter a lot and uh, countries with capital controls actually issue less, uh, fewer bonds in foreign currency. So you can use, uh, we show that, uh, so the, the US interest rate will affect how much you borrow in dollars, but if you have capital controls, uh, you can limit the dollar I issuance. One of the reasons is that you are less likely to borrow in international markets, you're more likely to borrow uh, at home, and you're more likely than to borrow in, in, in domestic currency. Now, it is true that the firms that borrow, uh, you would think, well, if they borrow in foreign currencies, because they are naturally hedged, they are exporters, but we don't, we don't find that. They borrow in foreign currency, this may be the, related to this orig original sin, because when uh, the dollar interest rate is very low, then it is cheaper to borrow in foreign currency. Plus, when the interest rate is very low in the US, international investors are eager to find uh, high interest rates. So they are eager to lend to these uh, um, emerging market firms that offer a higher uh, dollar interest rates than what they would find in, in their market. So it's basically the search for yield from the US that uh, facilitates the borrowing by emerging market firms. So when interest rates are low, you have these, uh, like a nice supply of funds uh, for the, the, these firms. So this is nice. The problem is when interest rates start to go up, like <clears throat> in the recent uh, year, the US interest rate is going up. Now these uh, investors searching for yield are no longer there. So they will, then they are going to, to pull out and then the currency will depreciate. So this increase in supply with low interest rate is very nice for these emerging markets while the interest rate is low, but then they are more exposed uh, to foreign currency risk and they are exposed, they're more exposed to increasing interest rates and an appreciation of the dollar. And why do you think, uh, I mean, for exporters, there are double reasons to do this, but you're finding that non-exporters are doing it. Is it primarily because of this original sin idea? Yeah, because, well, in the data, we, don't, we cannot say why they are, they, are, they are doing that. Either they don't realize the risk or maybe moral hazard, or it's just it is, it is cheaper to borrow. And whether they are exporter or not, they, uh, they borrow in foreign currency anyway. But can you look at firms and see like which kind of firms are issuing these bonds? Yes, yes, we, we, uh, we do. So it, is a firm, so it is firm level data, but we cannot say why they are uh, issuing uh, dollar bonds, more dollar bonds rather than 
domestic bonds. Maybe there is more supply of dollars. It, it's easier. It's easier to. It's just easier to borrow. And these firms don't internalize the cost that they have to pay. If uh... yes, yes, that's uh, that's what we that's what we find. So if you have like there are probably clear policy implications out of it because it's making the overall market more volatile, more risky in general. Right. So there we, we say, well, uh, well, first capital controls can can help because this will uh, try this will limit the amount of uh, foreign currency debt uh, of uh, corporate bond foreign currency debt. Well, you could also have macro prudential regulation, but we found that this is not very useful for uh, corporate bond uh, issuance. But no, you have to you have to be careful about that. So the traditional perspective was uh, about foreign currency borrowing by the banking sector. So there's been a lot of work uh, since the, the Asian financial crisis on uh, the amount of uh, foreign currency borrowing in the banking sector. Here, there is uh, now this new development for corporate bonds, and this is somewhere uh, also to, to look at because it is an, it's also a source of risk. But these are generally what maturity, these bonds that they issue? In that paper, we the maturity, uh, well, on average, I think it's around five, five years, but uh, I, I cannot um, now, I, cannot, I don't remember the, uh, the exact difference between short term and, and longer term. Now we, we had uh, the case where dollar bonds are of a longer maturity than, than domestic currency, but the precise numbers, I, I, I don't have them here. But in terms of the net outcome, is it still positive or is it negative? Like I'm thinking from the perspective that, yeah, if you are able to borrow cheaply, maybe you're able to invest and then although right. it's bad. That's, uh, could, it could be positive in the end. Uh, there, I mean, this empirical evidence that doesn't uh, tell us. Still, uh, no, if you have a, even if you are not an exporter, but you have a solid uh, financial firms, and uh, right, right now you suffer because you have a higher debt because of a dollar appreciation, but uh, maybe uh, over the over previous years you could you could borrow and in in bad times it was maybe easier to borrow. So yeah, the uh, the balance of uh, positive and negative is, is is difficult to to make. And usually they borrow in dollars, or it can also be euro. This. It's, it can be in euros also. Yes, it's uh, it's mainly mainly in dollars, but yeah, euros is also a part of that. So since we are talking about dollars already, maybe I, I'll ask you like a very broad question. Like, what are your views on de-dollarization? Do you think there is some movement on it, or yeah, de-dollarization is an interesting uh, like geopolitical uh, topic. Of course, we see a decline in the proportion of reserves in dollars. So there are some numbers that say well. There is less use of, of, of dollars in the world economy, but uh, this is only uh, this partial view about international reserves. Well, first, uh, because as, as the reserves increase, it's more difficult to only buy dollars, so you need to diversify more. So as you buy more reserves, you start to buy other currencies. So naturally, the proportion would decrease. Then some countries were afraid of... Uh, Know what happened with with Russia, so they they tried to diversify. But if you go beyond these reserves in the other areas, we don't find a, a decline in the the use of of the dollar. We don't find strong reasons why firms, banks, financial intermediaries would use less dollars. On 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 the contrary, so the dollarization is not for today. Is not for tomorrow. So this may be a long. These are long term, like over decades. There may be changes. But I don't see any de-dollarization uh, in, in, the, in the medium term. 
But the events uh, like the current uh, freezing of assets of Russia, do you think these can have like some long-term impact at least on the central bank balance sheets? Because as you mentioned, some countries are already diversifying. Right, yes. So they will, will be, but, but in the overall uh, scheme, you know, in the international financial ar architecture, this uh, will have uh, little impact. We, we still see uh, dollar shortages everywhere. Uh, people use dollars for, for, for trade, financial assets, it's the most liquid assets, and, and you need to find a, a replacement for that. And there's no replacement. We hope that some, some stage that the euro would uh, uh, do that, it's not doing that, and, and the other candidates are not in, in good shape right now. So last question, since we are already talking about uh, central bank reserves, like is there an optimal number? Is there optimal diversification? So if you're a central bank, how should you be thinking about these issues? Well, each central bank has a different environment. So that, uh, I think there's been a trend of increasing international reserves, in, uh, especially in emerging markets after the uh, Asian financial crisis. There are uh, attempts of uh, quantifying the costs and benefits of, of, of reserves that have been done at the, at the IMF, for example, uh, trying to find uh, an, an optimal number we cannot have a, a, some precise. So the, for emerging markets, there is a cost of, of uh, having uh, reserves because you need to basically borrow in, uh, in abroad with, with a risk premium. So there is a cost. So they cannot be uh, they cannot be huge. Uh, for more developed countries, I worked on the case of Switzerland. In that case, uh, there is no not such a cost. So having a large amount of reserve is not so not so costly. But uh, no, the precise. So if we if we use reserve for to defend the currency, it's a bit like uh, like the army. You, you use the army to defend the country. Uh, how large should be the army? Should it be uh, how much should you invest? Like one percent of GDP, three percent of GDP. So that's something we don't have a, a good framework to uh, to quantify. So since you worked with the Swiss bank, how how large are their reserves? Well, the reserve they increased dramatically uh, after the global financial crisis, and uh, in 2021 they were 120 percent of GDP. So much larger than the GDP. Now they're on their way down. They they are kind of normalizing it, but but the increase has been uh, enormous. So if you have a uh, changes in the in, in the exchange rate uh, or difference in interest rates. This has a big impact on the results of the central bank. And uh, so last year there were huge losses uh, because of that. Thanks so much, Philip. It was great talking to you. Yeah, it was a pleasure. It was Thank a you. Pleasure.